finding a gay person of faith is not hard. And I would encourage anyone listening who's trying to think about how do we do better in our church in terms of our approach in responding to teenagers, you need to talk to some people who can help you understand what their experience was like. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. everybody. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. I am Matt Burke, the Education Director and the Northeast Director for the Center for Congregations. And with me, as usual, is the indomitable Ben Tapper. Now that's a description I can get behind right there. <laughs> Unable to be dominated. Yes, yes. Good to be here as always, Matt. Great to be here. I mean, some cashews, folks. Cashews are just a great nut full of magnesium. Get your day started right. This podcast is not sponsored by Cashews, but we should be. I was going to say, what are you doing? Going for sponsorship shit? Right. <laughs> hey, can't we do better than Cashews? <laughs> hey, man, we got to start small, okay? <laughs> all right, all right. Cashews aside, we have a pretty phenomenal interview today and a topic we have yet to cover on this podcast. And you know, Matt, I always get excited when we go into new topics. And so I'm excited about this one. It's definitely a topic that may cause some consternation among some people. We are speaking very specifically about LGBTQ youth and families today. We want you to know up front that we are not espousing any specific theological or biblical background on this. That is not the point whatsoever. And so we are inviting you into a conversation with someone who this is a very personal issue to and who has thought about this a lot and has actually edited a book on this that we'll share in the show notes in a little bit. But just stick with us. Even if this is not a topic that you typically listen to or are comfortable with, we'd ask that you really stick it out because we think that this will be helpful in many ways for many different people, regardless of your view on this topic in general. And you know, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, that we like to start each episode kind of explaining where this is coming up in our work and why it's important to talk about it. But you also know if you've lived in the U.S. for more than like two days that we don't really need to explain why this is an important issue to talk about. It is kind of ever-present in many Christian circles, especially it's still dividing denominations and congregations. So I don't think we need to like sell why this is important to talk about. It just is, and I think it will continue to be so. With that said, I think it makes sense, Matt, to just jump into the interview and hear what our guest Mark Ostreicher has to say. Yeah, it'll be way more profitable listening to him than us at this point. So yes. <laughs> let's go ahead and just get right to it. So here is Mark Ostreicher, co-founder and partner of Youth Cartel.
Welcome back, everyone. Matt and I are excited to be here with Mark Osterreicher today. Mark is a founder of the Youth Cartel and a current partner at the Youth Cartel, and he trains and resources youth workers. Also worth noting, Mark has an epic, maybe the most epic beard I've ever encountered and a wonderful t-shirt collection. And Mark was also a guest on our podcast previously, season two, episode two. So check that out if you want a first taste of Mark. But having said all that, Mark, it is so great to have you back with us this morning. Yay, I'm glad to be here. And I'm sad that our listeners aren't going to get to observe the beard, so they'll have to check out your social media pages <laughs> to understand yeah. what I'm seeing this morning. <laughs> but we're here to talk about a topic that we haven't really explored at all on the Center for Congregations podcast yet. And Matt and I are excited to have you here to kind of be the inaugural episode for this topic. And that's really wrestling with how do we talk about, how do we live out, how do we address LGBTQ life within congregational life and ministry. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, you have been resourcing youth workers for a long time. You've had these conversations. When you approach this delicate topic, can you just help our audience understand where you like to start? Yeah. Boy, what a feisty and divisive topic, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting, you know, in my work, is almost exclusively with youth workers, people who work with teenagers in churches. And I would say that certainly some of them also make it a feisty and or divisive topic. But the majority of youth workers that I'm working with are just saying, we want to do better in this area. And they might differ with each other on some theological points pertaining to this topic, but they still want to do better with kids because that's their calling, right? So yeah, when I address this topic, I usually start with two things. One is a disclaimer about what I'm not setting out to do, which is to force people to change their theology. And really, I mean, I'm a theologian in the sense that we're all a theologian, right? But I'm a pragmatist. I'm an in-the-trenches youth worker, and I need to find stuff that works. So when I talk about this topic, I often notice that everyone's tense at the beginning. So I want to start right from the beginning and say, look, our goal here, and I think this is true even of this short little podcast, is our goal is not to get you to rework your theology on what does the Bible say about LGBTQ people. So, so relax, right? And exercise a little bit of curiosity. And then I usually also start by telling my story, which I'll just briefly mention here is that I never set out to be somebody who talked about this topic, but then my oldest kid came out to my wife and I 12 years ago now, first as bi, and then six months later as gay, and then six months later as trans, and six months later as non-binary, which, by the way, that progression of coming out is instructive in and of itself. There's mm -hmm. so often, especially with teenagers on identity formation, trying to figure this stuff out. And yeah. declarations or questions are often not the final deal. They're part of the figuring it out process, right? So when Riley came out to us, we started on a journey, all of us together, my wife and my oldest kid, Riley, and I would actually say it included my younger kid, Max. And I was let's say, closeted as the dad of a queer kid for three or four years. I, I was terrified to talk about it. I didn't know what to think. I, I was afraid that it would like send people away from me mm. or that I would lose credibility or whatever. It's stupid stuff, but, you know. The stuff that mattered to you at that moment. Yeah, yeah. 
And anyhow, I eventually started speaking and writing about it. But I will say in that earliest period of time as a key volunteer in my church's youth ministry, and both of my kids at that time were teenagers and actively involved in leadership of our youth ministry, I learned some things about how churches should and shouldn't respond because I don't think my church handled it very well. And particularly the youth pastor, who is a good friend of mine and continues to be a good friend of mine to this day, the way he responded to Riley ended up feeling like judgment to them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was definitely a learning process for me was some of the things that I wish had been different in how my own church responded. Mm. And, and let me ask a quick clarifying question about that process. Was part of your hesitancy or uncertainty about talking about it initially, just protecting and honoring kind of that it isn't inherently your story, right? It's, it's Riley's story and, and wanting to be sensitive to that. Yeah. I don't know if that was like initially my thought, because I don't know if I knew enough about how to talk about this to have that be my hesitation, right? I mean, the honest truth is things have changed a lot in a decade, right? And I mean, Christian leader can still get canceled or taken down pretty quickly Mm -hmm. right now. But 12 years ago, you didn't have to take a theological stance to get distanced or shut down, right? Just, I was afraid that even saying my kid is gay and I love my kid. Yeah. Like, no, I will acknowledge it wasn't all logic on my part. And I had some shame involved in that because I felt like I was prioritizing my career over my kid. And that felt really gross. So it was a hard place. For sure. Lots of conversations with Riley. And I will say to their credit that they were very helpful and gracious to my wife and I as we processed and wrestled with some things. Yeah. Hey, how about if I tell you, Ben, and all four of our listeners, how about if I tell you (laughs) (laughs) in very brief form, maybe like the four things that I learned just from my experience with my church and then we can kind of move on to some more proactive stuff. That's okay. Yeah, That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. So first thing I learned was that I don't want or need judgment. And that sounds easier than it is to be honest, because so many comments and reactions can come off as judgment. Like Mm. if people ask, what do you think went wrong or what caused this? it really easily feels like a condemnation of my kid or of my parenting or of our home or whatever, right? Mm. Second, I realized I want compassion, but not pity. And that's because this this would be a transferable principle to lots of things. I discovered that pity feels like judgment. And so I do want people to ask how I'm doing and acknowledge that parenting can be tough and ask how you can help. But I really struggled when people would, you know, say, oh, I'm so sorry for you or that kind of thing. What I really needed, I think, is the same thing that my child needed. And that's to know that you want my kid here, even if they don't fit your idea of the ideal youth group kid. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And then this is a huge aha for me. I need my church to celebrate all that is good and beautiful and true about my child and my relationship with my child and not have their sexuality or gender or whatever become the only topic that we ever are aware of. The reality is my kids are awesome. They were both student leaders. Both were playing in the high school worship team. Riley was very active and committed, showing up every week. There was lots to celebrate, but those subjects all got dropped. And the only topic ever addressed became this one. And that felt like a diminishment of all that was and continues to be good, right? And then finally, I just, I needed my church and particularly our youth ministry to get uncomfortable and go overboard in communicating, we love you and we want you here to my kid without qualifications, right? Mm-hmm. The church I go to is an evangelical church that would be on the conservative side of the midpoint on human sexuality theology. And I think you can be a non-affirming church and still be a church that is truly loving. And that was a struggle, I think, in the youth ministry at my church at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's research that shows that, by the way. There was a landmark study done on the faith of LGBTQ people about 10 years ago now. It'd be interesting to see an update of it. And it was the largest study ever conducted of the faith of LGBTQ people. And it's reported in a book by Andrew Marin called Us Versus Us. And they found a couple of really fascinating things. First, they found that the vast majority of LGBTQ people are people of faith. They have a actually a Christian faith, some version of a Christian faith. This is a fascinating insight. A higher percentage of the LGBTQ community identifies as having Christian faith than the general population. Yeah, it's really interesting. By the way, when the majority of those LGBTQ people who have a Christian faith don't go to church, they found that the majority of those expect to return to church at some point in their life. And this is the really interesting finding. Theological alignment on this issue was not the most important thing to them in finding a church they would return to. Instead, the question was, does the church make it clear that I'm wanted, that they want me there? Mm. So I do think that all kinds of churches can get into these muddy waters and do well and be theologically responsible at the same time, right? So I should say another thing that came out of that research that particularly connects to youth ministry, and it was not a youth ministry study, by the way, is they were trying to figure out why is there this gap? Why is there a larger percentage of LGBTQ people who are of Christian faith than the general population? That was counterintuitive to them, the researchers. And long story short, what they discovered was that in middle school, in the sixth through eighth grade years, there is a whole group of students who are experiencing same-sex attraction or gender questions. They come from families that are not church attenders, but they're wrestling with these questions and turn to a church even though they've never attended before and might not even yet have faith, they turn to a church to see if maybe this might be a place where I can get help. Specifically, turning to a church is a way of 
turning to a God that may or may not yet exist in their mind, but maybe God can help me with this. So the research was showing that there is a significant portion of middle schoolers, particularly, which is the age group I work with, who start attending church as a means of trying to figure out the deeper questions they're asking about sexuality and gender. Sadly, of course, they don't find that help and usually end up leaving church by the end of their teenage years. Yeah. That's really interesting. Do you happen to know what the study was called? And maybe we can link that in the show notes. Well, you can link the book, Us Versus Us, because the book is the report of the study. Yeah. Got it. Andrew Marin, he's the one who kind of formulated it, but he's not a sociologist. So he brought two world-class sociologists in to work on it. One, an evangelical, Mark Airhouse, who teaches at Wheaton College and has written extensively on this topic. And then he brought in an atheist gay man who is also a world-class sociologist to both be advisors on that project. Yeah, and I'm curious, Marco, as we look at this across different progressive and conservative spectrums in congregations, it seems like we can often look at the more conservative side of things and assume that there may be problems with engaging with LGBTQ youth in those congregations. But are there places even where progressive congregations could do a better job? Do you have a sense of that? Because this has been a part of your life, something you've been interested in, have researched and talked with people. Is there something across kind of the whole spectrum of church where congregations can learn to do and be better in this area? Yeah, great question. You know, there's a lot of churches not doing well with this, and it's not only potentially because they're conservative, right? There are progressive and moderate churches that are not doing great with this either. For example, just telling a kid who's asking questions, hey, you do you, everything's good. That's not helping them wrestle with the deeper questions they're asking, right? And I think the reality is that a lot of us adults are just freaked out about talking about sexuality with teenagers. We either obsess about it, and I see that in our culture a lot, is that adults in a really creepy way tend to obsess about teenage sexuality, or we're terrified of it so we never, ever talk about it, and it becomes part of what education theorists would call our null curriculum, which is mm. the things we don't talk about. It. The idea behind that is the things we don't talk about teach just as much as those things that we do talk about. Yeah. So a church's theological posture on this is not the only indicator at all of whether or not they're doing a good job, right? So let's talk a little maybe briefly about what a good job looks like, right? What can we actually do to help teenagers? So I guess I would start by saying that I want to encourage churches to embrace a, oh, almost an axiom that every story is unique and a one-size-fits-all policy about how to respond to LGBTQ teenagers is regularly kind of come up short in its helpfulness. And Instead, we need to maybe have some practices in place, but policies when it comes to this complex and varied topic gets really tough really fast. Since I've started talking and writing on this topic, I end up in conversations with youth workers all the time. And it's often because they've had a kid come out either as same-sex attracted or gay, or they're questioning their gender or have decided that they're trans. And the youth worker doesn't know what to do. Sometimes it's because there's a pragmatic issue. 
like we've got summer camp coming up and I don't know where to put this kid in a cabin. Right. And so to process that kind of thing together, the reality is there's so many questions to ask. What's the parent's knowledge? What's the parent's involvement? If it's something like sleeping arrangements in a camp, what options are there? Right. So I would just encourage churches to think we're not going to have a one size fits all policy on everything. Instead, we're going to have some practices that we're going to consider in conversation with the teenager and ideally with their parents too. A second axiom is I don't think you can work out your approach to ministry with LGBTQ teenagers apart from relationship with at least real LGBTQ adults, if not teenagers. And you might think, I don't think we have any in our church. That's, of course, probably not true. You probably do. But even if you think you don't or if they're hiding, finding a gay person of faith is not hard. And I would encourage anyone listening who's trying to think about how do we do better in our church in terms of our approach in responding to teenagers, you need to talk to some people who can help you understand what their experience was like. Ask some questions. You can always call an LGBTQ center and ask to talk to somebody, or you could call your friend at a progressive church and say, hey, I really need to have a conversation. You'd be surprised at how many people would like to help you and not try to convert you to their gay agenda, okay? Let's put some air quotes around that. Yeah. Okay, right? (laughs) Third, I think it's really important to embrace this idea that it's okay to say, I don't know. I always try to get youth workers and particularly volunteer youth workers to embrace this idea. On this topic, it feels like we're supposed to have all the answers, but it's a hard, complicated topic. And so it's okay to say, I don't know, and to say, we're going to try to figure some things out together. And then I guess kind of a final shot here would be, I encourage youth workers and all volunteer youth workers to be ready with their first four responses when a kid asks a question or comes out to them. Because it's so easy when a kid comes up to you and says, hey, I need to talk. And as a youth worker, that's the golden moment, right? You're so excited when a kid wants to share some with you. And then they say, I think I might be trans or I'm gay and nobody knows and I'm not sure what to do. And it's so easy for us as youth workers, conservative or progressive, whatever, to freak out because this, at the very least, this feels like a really big moment and I don't want to mess it up. But it also has all these questions of how do I respond in a way that's both true to what my church believes, but also loving and gracious in this moment. I'm not even sure that I've worked out what I believe, right? And so the first four responses I think are so critical and they are, thanks for your courage in talking to me. That's the first response. Any teenager who chooses to ask a question or express, let you in on their thought process or what they're wondering about, that took courage for them to talk to you. And they have some level of conscious or subconscious fear that they're going to experience rejection in that moment. So acknowledge, thank you for your courage in talking to me about this. Really, they're honoring you by talking to you about this. Second response, God loves you. Let's just theologically confidently state this. God loves you. Many 
maybe not all, but I would say most teenagers who are wrestling with sexuality or gender issues are wondering also, does this mean that I will be rejected by God? By the way, it's not all just even about them. It's like my Mm. friend is gay or my older brother is, you know, whatever it is. Right. And so it's not even always about themselves, but they're wondering, does that mean as the Westboro people say that God hates fags and that means they're going to burn in hell, right? So they need to know God loves you. State it as truth. Response number three, we love you. Response number four, we want you here. There might be some places where we're going to disagree. There might be some hard things we're going to dig into. We might even have to wrestle with answers together, but we want you to know that we want you here. So thanks for your courage. God loves you. We love you. We want you here. First four responses. And I would say most of those need to be restated to a kid as the conversation goes on. And then subsequent to that is when you can start asking questions. Who knows? How long have you been wrestling with this? That's a really critical one for teenagers. Like, for example, on transgender issues, if a kid has been wrestling with these feelings of gender dysphoria since they were four years old, by the way, that's the most common age for somebody who's kind of got lifelong struggle with gender dysphoria to start to realize it when they're four. That's a very different story than a kid who says, well, I just started wrestling with it last week and they're 13 or 14 years old. In fact, those are diagnosed by the world of psychology as two different things. There's the early onset of gender dysphoria And there's rapid onset gender dysphoria. And those look really, really different. By the way, there's been over a thousand percent increase in at least reported cases of rapid onset gender dysphoria. And I'm regularly interacting with either youth workers or teenagers who are talking about or wrestling with issues of gender, but it's just the normal process of identity formation and figuring yourself out as a teenager. It doesn't necessarily mean anything yet. So there's got to have be that kind of, I'm going to walk alongside you attitude. So yeah, who knows how long have you been wondering, do I have permission to ask you to bring this up again with you? Those kinds of questions. I really appreciate the detail that you're using to kind of talk about this and unpack this, Mark. A couple things stand out to me. Number one, our audience doesn't know this. We didn't give you questions to prep. Right. So this shows that you're in this day in and day out. Right. This is the waters you swim in. And that comes across. And I really appreciate that and the way you're able to deliver it. Secondly, I hear you. And this is language I would use, not necessarily language you're using. But I hear you kind of encouraging people, encouraging our audience to remember to put people over theology and maybe even over like figuring out practice. Right. It's about that relationship. Yeah. It's about demonstrating love. And that doesn't negate the theology you've got to hold but let you start with the people, right? In the relationship. You know, Ben, this is a good point that you're bringing up that not everyone will agree with me on, but here is how I've been wrestling with this. I think that our, I'm going to make a provocative statement. We in the American church and particularly in since the enlightenment, we've been obsessed with truth. Now I'm not anti-truth, yay for truth. And I would make the theological statement, God is truth, right? But I see on the like youth worker discussion boards on Facebook, the groups, don't call them boards anymore, I guess, all the time, people who are holding up what's almost become kind of a cliche, 
that we need to balance truth and love, right? If we heard that idea, I don't believe that is biblical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, Jesus says, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, doesn't say truth and love, and they're equal, right? So I'm pro-truth, and I do believe that it's critical to understand what you believe to be true. I just want to suggest that I think the clear teaching of Scripture, and particularly Jesus' teaching, is love trumps, right? And so if our stand for truth is not driven by an overarching passion for love, then it's a loud resounding gong, right? Start with love. Yes. Yeah. So start with love. Yeah. Yes. Preaching to the choir. I love that. And, you know, as a former youth worker, I feel like hearing that could be refreshing for people to know that I don't have to figure out or even abandon my beliefs. I can just like be with this person in front of me and offer them love and care. And that's beautiful. And I want to return to something that we started this episode with that is unique. And I don't hear talked about a lot. Maybe I'm just out of these spaces, but Mark, I loved that you drew our attention to the experience of the parents and adults of the teens that are going through this as well, right? And so can you unpack a little bit more about what it means as a minister, as a friend, as a family member, a youth worker, to also be there for whether you're a parent, an older relative, or even another minister that's walking with the teen as they're unpacking these things? What does it mean to be there with them? Yeah, I mean, that I learned from my own story, but I've seen it over and over again now, hundreds of times. It's interesting how many youth workers who don't know how to deal with this topic will send a parent from their church to me, Hmm. (laughs) which I'm like, dude, you're the one who should be doing this, right? (laughs) It just means walking alongside people. Parents just need to know that they're not crazy or that they're not a failure, right? And, you know, it's interesting in my own story, I think most of your listeners would understand that LGB lesbian, Mm -hmm. gay, bisexual, that's about attraction. And that's a very Mm -hmm. different thing than gender identity, which is the T, right? And there's all kinds of language, non-binary and gender queer and stuff that go with these different things. So when Riley came out to us about the attraction stuff, bisexual and then gay, although today would be bisexual, that wasn't a personal crisis for me. It had challenges Mm-hmm. But when they came out to me as trans, it suddenly became a personal crisis for me because here's why it might surprise you, but it'll make sense. I was the dad of a daughter mm-hmm. and I had been for 17 or 18 years at that point, the dad of a daughter. And I was good at being a dad of a daughter and I loved being a dad of a daughter. And I was suddenly being told you're no longer the dad of a daughter, yeah. right? So it was, I would almost say it was like an ontological crisis of being. It was core to my own identity. And there was some grieving. I'm losing a part of who I am that I love, right? And so, you know, a big part of that just became my wife and I over and over again saying to each other, forfeiting our relationship with Riley gets us nowhere. Yeah. And this is the encouragement I give parents who chat with me all the time right? Having an opinion that differs or an ideological commitment that differs with someone else is fine. But if I forfeit the relationship, what good am I doing or getting? There's no benefit to anyone. Mm. So we always prioritized 
we are going to stay in good, meaningful relationship with our kid as we process this. Mm. Both things are true, right? It can be true that you as a parent are grieving the stories you've been telling about your life, about your relationship with your child, about your own identity in some regards, right? And that there is a lot. You are losing something and you get to hold that grief and wrestle with that and let that be true. And that doesn't negate the very real experience that your child or your younger relative is having around their own sense of identity and the way that they exist in the world. Like both get to be true. Yes. And you can hold both. Right. That's so powerful. This episode has been beautiful and you have dropped a lot of rich content for people. I expect folks to have to go back and listen two or three times just to make sure they got all the bullet points that you've left. (laughs) um, and, And they're great. For those that just feel like, okay, I've listened. I know there's good stuff. My mind is so overwhelmed. I couldn't capture it all. Is there a landing space or a landing place that you would invite them to kind of just rest in, in this moment, in the midst of all that they're feeling and processing and dealing with that can help them maybe just settle? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's just a great question. I guess I would give you the truth that you listener that you already know, but I want to remind you of that as much as we want to communicate to teenagers who are wrestling with stuff, look, you're loved and you're safe here. The same is true for you, listener, right? You're loved and you're safe, right? And that you are safe in God's love. So, you know, rest in that. You don't have to figure everything out immediately. Do some reading. Read some things you don't expect to agree with, but ask God to reveal what you are supposed to notice, right? And have some conversations and get into the messiness of it. There's no way to a better place without kind of going through the messiness on this topic. Mm, That's a sermon right there. There's no way through without going through the messiness. (laughs) Yes. Love that. Uh, Marco, where can people go to learn more about you, to follow your work, or just identify other resources that might be helpful? Yeah, well, the organization I lead is the Youth Cartel, and so we're the youthcartel.com. But that's really a place for youth workers. I have written a book on this topic, but it is for youth workers. I have had a lot of parents read it, though, and find it helpful. It's called Four Views on Pastoring LGBTQ Teenagers. It's a multi-views book with different theological and practical postures. And I general edited it and wrote the intro. So, yeah, that might be something that people would consider checking out. Great. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes along with the Us Versus Us book that you mentioned. And Ben and I will have a couple of other resources. So, Marco, we're just so appreciative of your time. Thank you for sharing from your wisdom and your personal story. And I think this episode is going to really be impactful and help a lot of people. So thank you for your time. Absolutely. When it goes out, send me a link and I'll promote it too. And I also want to just thank you for the sacrifice of doing this interview outside in San Diego. I know that it's probably a rough ask for you, but we appreciate you making that happen, Marco. (laughs) You got it. Okay, guys. Have a great day. Hey, thanks, man. You too. Bye.
as we promised, it was a very fruitful interview. And I don't know about you, Matt, but personally, I've only interacted with Mark O maybe two or three times. But every time I just come away smiling and fueled, like inspired. And so I felt that again coming out of this interview, even though it was and, and is a tricky topic and a hard topic. So I'm curious what you are carrying after that interview. Yeah, well, first and foremost, I just appreciated him sharing his story. And I think that's what gets lost often in conversations around this topic is that we forget we're talking about people and we think we're talking about an idea. And I really appreciated what struck home for me was the part of the conversation around the fact that this is so much about helping youth understand their identity in general, not just their gender identity or their sexual identity, but youth struggle with identity. And so I really appreciated the moment where he said, you know, some congregations are like, hey, just be who you are. But that's not what that youth needs. They're saying, no, I don't know who I am. I don't understand what I think about myself and I need guidance in that. And so I thought there was a real beauty in that of remembering that youth is such a difficult time of identity formation. And my goodness, the congregations need to be a part of that formation and just the comfort of a community helping you understand your identity. And again, whatever that aspect of your identity is, but understanding who you are as you grow into adulthood, it's such, such an important thing. Yes, absolutely. I think Mark O did a great job of framing the episode and framing the topic, honestly, because he started out by saying that most of the youth workers that he encounters just want to do better for kids. And I think that framing was really important because it, it immediately decentered these theological and ideological arguments we get into and centered the people, to your point. It centered the children, centered the families. And I think that is what is so important. And so I really appreciated the way that he framed it, the vulnerability of his story, and how practical he made it sometimes. You know, there was that period during our conversation where he literally just went through and said, Hey, here are the four responses you need to give, regardless of where you're coming from ideologically. You got to give these four responses. If you do that, you're off to a good start, you know? And just, I don't know, I wasn't expecting that level of practicality, and I really appreciated it. And I imagine for those that are youth workers or family or clergy that are wrestling with this and struggling with figuring out how to respond in a healthy way, I think that's going to be really, really helpful to have something that feels tangible. Mm-hmm. One of the powerful elements behind that is something that has always stuck with me. We had a presenter talking about some of the main reasons why people have suicidality or suicidal ideation. And one of the things is a complete lack of a sense of belonging that like, mm. we don't want you here or you don't belong here. And so just the understanding that from a faith tradition, at least from a Christian faith tradition, my understanding is someone always belongs. Yeah. They are always loved as someone created in God's image, regardless of whatever you may think about their past, their behaviors, their struggles, but they still belong. And I just think that's such an important and critical piece of what it means to be a community, that we are here with you, we are here for you to help you navigate the journey of life, as opposed to cutting people off for any reason, really. That's one of the reasons why I think 12-step programs are so vital to congregational life and why I'm such a big fan of something like Celebrate Recovery, because those are places where people can come and be transparent about the things that they wrestle with, but they are loved no matter what. And there's such a powerful bond and connection. And I think all congregations need to figure out how do we develop that kind of community where people feel like they belong and they are loved, regardless of what they're wrestling with in the moment. 
Yeah. And Mark mentioned this, that that is important, not just for the youth that might be wrestling with these things, but that it's also important for the families, right? Uh, and for the parents. And, and I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to forget that those folks need care too, that they need to be ministered to as well, and they need to be walked with. And so I love that he centered that through the use of his own story. There was a moment where he said he had like an ontological crisis when his child came out as transgender. And he described it as, I was the dad of a daughter. The entire life of his child, he'd been the dad of a daughter. And suddenly he found out that that was no longer true. And that just really struck me because, again, regardless of your belief system, and maybe it's because I'm a parent now, I can understand to some degree why that would be an identity shift or maybe even a crisis of identity for a parent and that you would need someone to walk with you, if for nothing else, than to just hold space for all the complicated emotions that are going to come up as you are grieving that loss. And you might not even be grieving it because you think it is an objectively bad thing, Yet it is still a loss, right? It is still a shift. It is still a change. And you might need a community to help you process and hold space for that change as you work through it yourself. And so it was just a really great humanizing moment, I think, that that illuminated the complexity of this issue and, and the complexity of caring for people and caring for families that are walking through some of these questions of identity. Mm-hmm. There were actually a few additional things that stood out to me throughout this interview that were just so profound, I think. And one of them is, again, related to what I just shared about kind of the unique experience of a parent. And Mark said, I need the church to celebrate what is true about my child and what is awesome about my child. Mm. And again, I thought that was so profound because it comes back to how you started this, Matt, because he kept centering the people. And so we can get so hung up on these ideological, theological, culture war questions that we lose sight that at the end of the day, we are all actually complex people with various gifts and talents and experiences and layers to our identity. And so even if you are, as a congregation, walking with a family that is sifting through questions about sexual orientation or gender identity, we can't lose sight that there is still so much more to this person, so much more to this family. And we got to remind ourselves to continue to bring ourselves back to all that is awesome and all that is good and all that is true about that person and about that family. And I loved that he offered that reminder and then I think the, the final thing that I want to touch on, because there was a million things that I think I could touch on, but the final thing that, that really stood out to me was when he reminded folks that they don't have to have everything figured out. And he offered this challenge or opportunity as folks are kind of wading through the messiness of this issue. He said, you don't have to have everything figured out, but I encourage you to read something you might disagree with. And that surprised me because you don't often hear people encouraging you to read something you might disagree with. But for this context, for this issue, I think it's important, especially if you are new to wrestling with these things. You know, I remember when I was going through a period of my life where I was really wrestling with this question, this theological question, and it felt very heavy and very hard. And it was important to seek out sources that I might disagree with just to see what stuck and what didn't. And to let the spirit do its work within me. And I think that was Mark's point. Like, seek out a source you might disagree with and invite God to help you understand what you need to hold on to from that, you know, and what you need to let go of so that you can be open to the ways that you might shift or be edified. And I really appreciated that. And so on the whole, 
I think he brought a lot of wisdom and nuanced discussion and framing to this topic. And if y'all can't tell, I'm just really, really grateful for his voice, for the experience that he shared, and for the wisdom that he brought from his work. Yeah, same. And thematically, just from kind of an arc of the podcast that we've been doing, it's made me reflect on where am I othering people? Because I think othering is the root of a lot of the evil that we're seeing in our society, that Mm -hmm. we may not consciously look at someone because of their ideology and think consciously they are less than human, but I think we actually believe that. Mm -hmm. I think we look at people across the ideological spectrum, and that could be political, it could be theological, it could be national, and we just see them as less than human in some way, shape, or form. Again, not naming it that way, but behaving in that way. And that, to me, is the root of of divisiveness in society in general. And we've got to do a better job of recognizing shared humanity, and especially for theological traditions that affirm that as the core of what they believe, Mm -hmm. that we need to remember our shared humanity and recognize the image of God in others regardless of where they stand apart from us and begin the conversation there. Well said. Well said. And I think this actually touches on something that I was thinking about yesterday, completely unrelated to this topic, but related to my own healing. And I just would love your reaction to this, Matt. I wonder if the reason it's easy to dehumanize folks is because we lose sight of, or at least I'll speak for me, I lose sight of how messy it is to really be human, right? Like, we are inherently problematic, I think, and imperfect, even the best of us, you know? And for me, when I am able to come face-to-face with the parts of myself that I don't really want to see or don't really like, there's a moment where if I am open to it, I can then also give more grace to folks that are showing me parts of themselves that feel messier, that feel more painful, that feel harder to deal with than I like and would want to deal with. But I think more often than not, I lose sight of just how inherently messy and tough and problematic it is to exist as a person in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a great point, Ben. And I learned through a practice in Celebrate Recovery how to see myself in that way. It's been so helpful for me on the other side of it that when you speak at Celebrate Recovery, you start off by claiming your identity in God, and then you also state that with which you are struggling in that given week. And that may be a different thing than why you initially came. It could be a whole host of different things, but that framing does two things. It centers your identity in the divine, but it also acknowledges publicly that you're a flawed person who still is struggling with things. And practicing that every week, not only in the main session, but in the the small group sessions, provides the ability to get beyond just the categorical black and white thinking about human beings because you see yourself as some good things, some flaws. And through that practice of seeing that in yourself and the grace you're given from that community, you're then able to begin to embrace the positives and the flaws of others around you. So I wish that practice was more embedded in larger community contexts other than just celebrate recovery because you know sometimes CR has kind of a stigma it's a 12 step yeah. program so they assume that you're struggling with alcoholism or drug dependence for those of you who are not familiar that's not what it's about i mean it's literally anything CR welcomes anyone in the door on any kind of struggle or issue that you're having it could be relational it could be personal whatever but the 
premises of that program are so valuable to the larger community that I wish some of those practices would leak out. In fact, I think we'll probably end up doing an episode on something along these lines in the future because it's such a helpful practice. I love that. I'm down for that. And so, you know, I think our hope is that as you've listened to Marco and as you have reflected on your own experience and then heard Matt and I's kind of reflections on this, that you are maybe more in touch with your own humanity and more open to seeing and receiving and being present to the humanity of other people, you know, be those people in your family, people at work, people in your congregation, and that you can take that presence and that openness and that grace into discussions and practices that deal with LGBTQ plus issues. And if we can do that, I think we've got a shot at, you know, leading with love first, which is the ultimate goal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, Ben, let's turn to resources. So what are some things that you think might be helpful for listeners to check out after the podcast? A few different things. The first resource I'm going to offer is the book. I'm holding it up to the camera as if y'all are going to see it. You're not going to see it. (laughs) But it's called Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians by Austin Hartke. And it's specifically related to transgender Christians. So it may not be applicable or even that interesting for some of y'all, depending upon where you're at, what your congregation is wrestling with. But I do like it because I think it serves as an introduction and as an opening. If you're someone that has deep questions about the issue of LGBTQ inclusivity in general or has questions about transgender people and Christians, I think this is just a great place to start. Definitionally, Austin does some work on the front end to kind of get everyone on the same page of what we mean when we're using terms like transgender, what we mean when we're talking about sex and sexual orientation versus gender and gender identity. Again, simply because if we're going to have these discussions, we have to be speaking the same language. And so I appreciate the work that Austin does just to kind of level the playing field and ensure that as the book goes on, we're all thinking and talking about the same things definitionally. And it's just it's got some good personal experiences and some narrative in here that I think is rich. And bonus, it's a short read, so it's not going to take up a whole lot of your time reading or listening to it if you're listening to the audiobook. So that's the first resource, Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. Check it out. Nice. What do you got today, Matt? So one of the things that we'll list, I'm not going to talk about this extensively because Marco talked about it during the podcast, but we are going to list the Us Versus Us, the untold story of religion in the LGBT community. This is a 2016 publication. So as Marco said, it would be great if somebody would update this. But if you're interested in that topic, it may be something that you might want to check out. But I am going to bring also the book, A Bigger Table, Building Messy, Authentic, and Hopeful Spiritual Community by John Pavlovitz. And this book deals not only with LGBT inclusion and gender equality, but also talks about racial tensions, global concerns, theological shifts, basically a book that if you're interested in thinking about what does it mean to have a bigger table in your congregation, this kind of broadens the horizons and the landscapes of that to be thinking about how do we show radical hospitality and love in such a way that we can embrace those who may be different than who we are. Excellent. Radical hospitality and love. And, uh, you know, Radical hospitality is one of those concepts that I think will serve you well in any area, regardless of what you're wrestling with. So I appreciate that that's the framing. 
I've got two other resources that I'm going to bring. And again, these two might not apply to everyone. We recognize that our podcast listeners might be on on very different ends of the spectrum when it comes to this issue, you know, and so we try to find resources that potentially could benefit anyone regardless of where you're coming from. But these two might be more beneficial for those that come from congregations that are already open and affirming. But I'm going to offer them anyway. The first is the Open and Affirming Coalition of the United Church of Christ. And I bring it because they have webinars and some education. They've got some surveys. And so if you are already open and affirming, you can check out this resource, do some of the surveys, and identify ways that you can still grow in your hospitality, in your inclusivity. And I think that is important because, again, regardless of where we are on the spectrum, all of us want to know how to show love and how to show love better. And and so even if you think you're already doing something really, really well, you think you're already open, there's still probably work to do. So, yeah, so I wanted to bring that resource from the UCC just in case you want to figure out ways that you can still grow, even if you're already open and affirming. So, yeah, and I have one more resource, and this is actually out of the youth cartel. This is four views on pastoring LGBTQ teenagers, effective ministry to gay, bi, trans, queer, and questioning students among us. And this is actually a compilation from four different authors from different theological backgrounds and perspectives. But what they share in common is we know that there may be LGBTQ youth in our congregation and in our youth community, and we need to be able to minister and care for them. So four different views. And again, all across different theological spectrums. So a good read as well. And also to maybe interact with some things that you agree with and maybe some things that you don't agree with. Absolutely. Thanks. And I love the diversity of voices because, again, to your point, it allows you to interact with viewpoints that you might disagree with. And that's helpful. So thanks for bringing that, Matt. And as we wrap up, we always want to encourage you to send us feedback. You know, we want to know what you think about the podcast. We want to know what topics you want covered or if there are guests you want to recommend. So feel free to email us at podcasts at centerforcongregations.org. And right before you email us, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts because that's the fastest way for new listeners to find this work. Yeah, and shout out to Jason, who regularly converses with us via the podcast inbox. Jason, glad you're listening. Glad you're out there. And we want to encourage you to follow us on social media at the Center for Congregations on Facebook and Instagram. You can find out information on upcoming education events and podcast episodes. Also, check out the CRG, T-H-E-C-R-G dot org. It's around 1,800 to 2,000 of the best resources that the Center for Congregations has curated over the last 20 years. And again, we have no relationship with these publishers or these organizations. These are things that we've just independently found in our work with congregations that we think are really helpful. And that's a free web search available to anybody out there. Yes, and we want to, as always, thank the generosity of the Lilly Endowment It's their generosity that allows this work to continue and allows us to do things like this. And so we appreciate the endowment for their support. We also want to thank Jaden Lee, our editor. He makes us continue to sound fantastic and cuts out all the stuff that you don't need to hear. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Thank you, Jaden. And last but not least, we have our geographic shout out and another town or city that I'm probably going to butcher, so apologies in advance, but I want to give a shout out to our listeners in Tennessee. And our most recent listeners in Tennessee are coming from Nashville and a place that I have honestly never heard of. I'm sure it's wonderful, but I've never heard of it, never been there, called La Follette, Tennessee, La Follette, Tennessee. <laughs> and forgive that's me. That's La Follette, Tennessee, and that's probably my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so shout out to mom and dad in La Follette, Tennessee. <laughs> Down by Norris Lake. Love it. Thank you, Max. I was like, this is a rough one. (laughs) Shout out to Matt's parents. 
Uh, y'all, we appreciate you listening and sticking with us for four seasons now. We've got a couple more episodes this season, but it's been a, a joy, and, and we appreciate your listenership and your support. So as always, thanks for being here and joining us. Yeah, thanks, everybody. And for the Center for Congregations, I'm Matt Burke. And I'm going home. Take care. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thank you.